that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. Father, we come and we ask that these words would inspire and comfort us, fill us with hope, and motivate us as we anticipate this incredible event the return of Jesus Christ for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Some of you have seen bumper stickers on backs of cars that say, in case of rapture, this car will be unmanned. And that frightens a lot of people. When they see bumper stickers like that, um, maybe it wouldn't frighten you, depending on how the guy's driving, it might not be much worse. It just depends, but... The event that we're speaking about, that these verses speak to this morning, is one of the most exciting and motivating things that Christians could ever hope for. Uh, This has stimulated the church for many, many years, yet it's very controversial at the same time. It's called the rapture of the church. I've got to tell you, when I first heard about the rapture, and somebody told me that we're going to meet the Lord somewhere in the atmosphere, be taken up and changed and then taken to heaven, I told him, when he told me that, I said, that's bogus. That, that, that's goofy. Uh, I didn't give much thought about the end of the world or what events would transpire, but when they told me what they said the scripture said about it, I thought, that's ridiculous, until I read it myself. Then as the years have gone on, it has become very exciting to think about the rapture of the church, uh, that he could come at any moment for us. And especially uh, before times of crisis or uh, before final exams, I remember praying that the Lord would come back. That the Lord, this is a great time for you to return right now, so I don't have to take that test. There was even a time where it was scary. I've told you about the time I went over to a Bible study in the afternoon, knocked on the door, nobody answered, cars were everywhere. Finally walked in the door, Bibles were all over the floor with coats and drinks, and nobody was there. I went into the kitchen, the water was boiling on the stove, and I thought I missed the rapture. They were out back watching an airplane, and um, I was scared. That might be a fun joke you'd like to play on your friends sometime. But more and more, the idea of what these verses portray is a great comfort. As it says in verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. It's a comfort to the church. Beyond that, I see the coming of the Lord as an absolute necessity, given the world in which we live. I've traveled now this year to uh, Mogadishu, Somalia, and to the southern Sudan, and I've been to India, and I've seen that there's civil war almost every place I've been. Incredible problems. And then you get back home to America, and you find out that you've got even more problems, that the crime rate goes up, and it just seems that there's no end. And I see the coming of the Lord as a necessity. Monarchies don't work. Socialism doesn't work. And i got to tell you, democracy doesn't work. And more and more, I'm becoming less and less Republican or Democrat. I'm a theocrat. 
I believe the only hope is when Jesus comes and takes care of this mess. Really. There's an inscription on the dome in Washington, D.C. that very few people know about, but every now and then an inquiring mind will ask what it means. It's referring to the second coming. It says, One far-off divine event toward which the whole creation is moving. Awesome! We're all moving toward that event. Jesus promised that he would return to his church. He said when the disciples were heavy laden with disappointment because Jesus was talking about his death, he said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many abiding places. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. I'll come back. A few months after World War II began, Douglas MacArthur left the Philippines and went down to Australia, and people thought that he was fleeing. He said, I shall return. Three years later, he stood on the soil of the Philippines and said, I have returned. One day Jesus Christ will come and he'll be able to say, I have returned, just like I said. The hope of his coming has prompted the church to look forward to that event. And I think that you should uh, live in anticipation. Uh, C.S. Lewis once said, it's largely because Christians have ceased to think about the other world that we have become so ineffective in this one. There's more to it than this. You are citizens of heaven. Now, this morning, as you look at these verses, we're talking about something yet future, a future event, prophecy. And uh, prophecy is what gives the Christian an advantage over the non-Christian. It's because of scriptures like this and several others that we don't have the time to develop this morning that Christians in the midst of suffering keep going. It's the advantage we have. It's sort of like cheating on a test. You know the end. You've read the last chapter. You know what the answers are. You've got the hope because of the scripture. And you ought to know that prophecy, if you've studied it at all, is very detailed in many regards. And it's more than a good guess. It's not a horoscope. It's not like the weatherman who makes a guess of what's going to happen this week. There are some pretty detailed things that the Bible says would happen, and some of which have happened. But this morning, I want to consider these verses in depth, verses 15, especially 16, 17, and 18. And uh, there's four aspects to this coming of Jesus Christ. There is the return, the resurrection, the rapture, and the reunion, so that you can commit it to memory or to notes. Look in uh, verse 16, the beginning of it. speaks about the return of Jesus. It says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God. This event is mentioned, first of all, in verse uh, 15. The word coming of the Lord. It's a very important word. Coming is the Greek word parousia. Parousia means the presence, uh, the visible coming of the Lord. And uh, it's an official term. 
of the presence of a high-ranking official, especially one of royalty, who comes and shows up in great splendor. That's what the word means. That visible splendor glory that Jesus Christ will come as. Then it says, he will descend from heaven with a shout. Literally a military command. I I don't know what it's going to sound like. But the word means a military command like a general would give his troops. The point is this. The return of Jesus Christ will usher in his coming as the king and the conqueror. He will come in person. He will come not as a suffering savior, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, but as the ruler of the earth when he comes. Uh, He's not going to sort of come. I've seen pictures circulated, a Polaroid picture of Jesus in this cumulus cloud formation, and there he is. He's in this picture. He's not going to come as a face in a tortilla, Uh, 30 miles south of town, if you've seen that all over the newspapers a few years ago, he's going to really come. Not as a myth, uh, not on a burrito, he's going to come in person. And I think at this point it's important to distinguish between two events because some of you have them together in your mind, they need to be separated. The first event, what we have called the rapture of the church or the coming of Jesus for his saints, is different from the second coming of Jesus Christ to the earth. They're sort of similar and very different. The rapture of the church, spoken about in this verse, is where the Lord descends in the air, not all the way to the earth, and we are caught up together to meet him in the air. Whereas the second coming of Jesus Christ is where Jesus Christ comes to the earth. He sets his foot on the Mount of Olives. It splits in two. It is very visible. uh, And the whole world will know about it. Um, In Matthew chapter 24, it says, Immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened, the moon will not give its light, the stars will fall from heaven, The powers of the heavens will be shaken. If you're trying to look it up, it's Matthew 24, verses 29 through 30. But by the time you do, I'll be finished with it. So just listen. And the powers of the heavens will be shaken. Then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven. And all the tribes of the earth will mourn. And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. That's the second coming. The first, the rapture, is sudden and unannounced. The second one, everybody knows about. The first one is for the church in the air. The second one is all the way to the earth and the whole world sees it. Um, In Matthew 24, uh, it says, Therefore you, that is his elect, you be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour when you do not expect him. Paul said, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, this is going to occur. And... uh, Then there will be, I think, seven-year period of tribulation. And after seven years of tribulation will be the second coming of Jesus Christ. He'll judge the nations, Matthew chapter 25. And then there will be a thousand years of where Jesus reigns upon the earth. Um, When he comes to the earth in the second coming, every eye will see him. It won't just be for a select few, the church. It won't just be some people caught up. Everybody will see it. It says also in Matthew 24, As lightning comes from the east and flashes to the west, so also will the coming of the Son of Man be. Now, I personally believe from the Scripture, 
this is my personal view of the end, that we will, the church will be taken up to meet the Lord in heaven. Then there will be seven years of tribulation. Then afterwards, after the tribulation, will come the second coming. Now I know that people have different views of that and they're mid-trib and post-trib. That's okay. Uh, uh, you can believe anything you want and some people say, well, that's heresy. No, you're not a heretic if you believe that. You're inaccurate, but you're not a heretic. Uh, it would seem that the scripture speaks about you escaping the wrath that is to come rather than going through it. That's my view. The big question a lot of people ask is, when is all this going to happen? When will the rapture come for the church uh, so we can get ready? Well, you, ought, you should be ready now. Um, every few years, I notice, people get restless, especially Americans get restless, and they think that they can plot the exact date when Jesus is going to return for his church. And they have charts and they have mathematical calculations and they're wrong. Uh, Jesus said, no man knows the day or the hour. That ought to be good enough, but it's not for some reason. And church history is laden with all sorts of predictions that haven't come true. Not made by God, but made by people who said, this is the exact day when Jesus is coming for the church. And all that does is discredit the church every time one of those things don't happen. Back in 1943, a group of people believed a man by the name of William Miller. And they got white robes and they put the white robes on them and they marched out of the town publicly, sat on a mountain, because William Miller knew, he said, the exact date when Jesus is going to come in the rapture. They sat there for a long time. He never showed up. Then over in England in 1945, somebody ran an article in the newspaper in Hertford, England that said, quote, the world is definitely coming to an end on December 11th at 12 noon precisely. That was a Wednesday. On Friday, the editor reran the article with a PS that said, we're still here. Back in 1988, some of you came to me and said, Skip, you owe it to this church to tell them that Jesus is going to come this year on this date in September. And here's a book called 88 Reasons Why He's Going to Come. You better read this. You better warn the church. I didn't do it, and some of you got mad. The predictions were made. It's funny, the 700 Club asked the man who made those predictions to show up. They scheduled him on the 700 Club to speak on this event the day after he said it would occur. He gave no response to that. I still have books. I collect all these. I was looking this week at the 88 reasons. I have one about that he would come back in 1991 and September 28, 1993, and the predictions keep coming. Now, because these things haven't happened, doesn't make the rapture invalid. I know it serves to discredit uh, Christians in the eyes of the world, but just because Jesus hasn't come yet doesn't mean he's not going to come in the future. In fact, there are so many signs that have ripened that would show that we are living toward the end of the age. But I'm not going to make any predictions as to when he's going to come. I just think that he's going to come. I think it's going to be soon, uh, whether that means today or whenever. But in verse 15 and 17, Paul uses the term we who are alive and remain, which could suggest that Paul believed that he would see the coming of Jesus in his lifetime. 
We call this doctrine the imminent return of Jesus. In other words, he could come at any moment. Uh, I can't wait. The longer I live, the more I want to see that event. Queen Victoria, when she was the Queen of England, she heard a sermon on the second coming. She was so excited by it that she said, Oh, I wish that he would come back in my lifetime. And her attendant said, Why does your majesty have this very earnest desire? She said, Because I would so love to throw my crown down at his feet. And just the sheer excitement of seeing visibly the Lord that you've read about and walked with by faith is exciting. So the Lord himself will descend. He will return. Now let's look at resurrection here. In verse um, 15, This we say to you by the word of the Lord, I'm backing up a little bit for context, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. Now he gives a definition to that. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Those who are dead, he's speaking to the young Thessalonian church, your relatives that you're worried about because they're now dead, they will rise again and they will rise first. The emphasis here is upon what happens to the body when Jesus comes back. They were all worried about their departed relatives. And it is all tied to verse 14, the resurrection of Jesus. He says, if we believe Jesus died and rose again, God will bring them with him when he returns. The emphasis is on the physical resurrection. Jesus physically died and he physically rose. And those who are dead in Christ will rise also. There will be a physical change that will happen to their body when Jesus Christ comes back. The word, by the way, to rise uh, in verse 16 is the word anistemi, which literally, it's from two words. It means to stand among others. When Jesus rose, he rose physically, not figuratively, not spiritually. His body came out of the grave. He stood with his disciples. He said, Touch my hands. Touch my feet. See that a spirit does not have the flesh and the bones as I have. He rose physical. He didn't hover over his disciples. He didn't give the Christ consciousness to his followers like some think. He physically rose from the dead. And so, those who have died, their body has remained on the earth. When Jesus comes for his church, there will be a resurrection physical resurrection of the body. And the dead in Christ will get it first. When Paul spoke of the resurrection, whether here or any place that had a Greek background, Greeks thought he was nuts. In Athens, you remember, they said, uh, you're proclaiming to us false gods, weird stuff, because you preach the resurrection. The Greeks believed that the resurrection was dumb. Who would want to come back in a body? And the whole idea is to escape the body of death. Secondly, how is it possible? The body decays. And so they thought it was foolish and they thought that it was impossible. Now, when a person dies, we discussed this last week, his shell remains. His body lies in the casket. We place him in a cemetery. It looks like he's asleep, but his soul or his spirit goes to be with the Lord. 
when Jesus comes for his church, there will be a transformation. There will be a transformation that will take place. Listen to what Paul said. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we shall all be changed. We shall all be changed. The word change means to exchange one thing for something else or to be transformed. Now, I've had this question posed. Well, how is that going to work? I mean, what about people who have died a long time ago? Or what if they were cremated and their ashes were scattered all over the place? Listen, this is a resurrection, not a reconstruction. You know, don't picture God looking for all those little dust particles to assemble you like a puzzle. It's a resurrection, a transformation that takes place. I think it's cleared up if you turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's cleared up a little bit. Paul devotes a whole chapter to this, the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of your body. And uh, in chapter 15, he likens the body to a plant. A seed dies, goes into the ground, a flower comes up. The seed and the flower, though related, don't really look alike. The flower looks a whole lot better than the seed. Verse 35, 1 Corinthians 15. But someone will say, how are the dead raised up? With what body do they come? Foolish one. What you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow... You do not sow that body that shall be, but mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he pleases, and to each seed its own body. Skip down to verse 42. So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption, it is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body. There is a spiritual body. And so it is written, the first Adam became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. However, the spiritual is not first, but the natural and afterward the spiritual. The first man was of the earth made of dust. The second man is the Lord from heaven. As was the man of dust so also are those who are made of the dust. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are heavenly. And as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the heavenly man. The seed and the flower. Seed goes into the ground. It dies. It brings forth life. A flower emerges. Though the flower is related to the seed, the flower looks a whole lot better than that seed. That's why we said last week, what will I look like in heaven? Well, you'll look a whole lot better than you look now. You'll be raised incorruptible. You'll be given a new body. It says in the book of Philippians, He will transform our lowly body. That's a description of your body. It doesn't matter how good looking you think you are now. You have a lowly body in comparison to that flowering body that you'll get one day at the resurrection who will transform our lowly body so that it may be conformed to his glorious body. 
That means there'll be no more blind eyes. No wheelchairs. No ears unable to hear. No disease. No acne. Brand new body that is heavenly. There was a chemist, in fact, the famous chemist Michael Faraday had an assistant who accidentally dropped a cup of silver into a huge beaker of strong acid and in moments it dissolved completely. You couldn't even see it. The great chemist was summoned. He placed immediately a chemical inside the acid which brought and coagulated that silver mass down at the bottom. It appeared once again. He took the silver mass out, had it cleaned up, taken to a silversmith and shaped once again into something even more beautiful. Your body will be absolutely changed and transformed, resurrected when he comes again. Now let's look at verse 17 and discuss that uh, intriguing thought of the rapture of the church. Okay, he's discussed the idea that Jesus will come again, that you don't have to worry about those who are dead. They'll be raised. They'll be raised first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up now just try to picture that if you can. It's a wild idea. Shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. That's the rapture of the church. You say, wait a minute. I didn't read the word rapture. The word rapture isn't in the Bible. That's true. But the concept is. For that matter, the word millennium isn't in the scripture. But the term a thousand years is. Uh, the term Bible isn't in the Bible. Doesn't mean you shouldn't read it. Just because the term isn't there, the teaching is. Now, the term caught up is the word harpazo. It's used 13 times in the New Testament. This is how it's used. Four times it means catch up, not catch up, to catch up is the idea. Uh, three times to take by force. Uh, twice it means to catch away. Twice to pluck or to pull one time to catch, and another time simply to pull. When Jerome translated the Greek into the Latin, he used the term rapto, where we get the word rapture. So it's as good a term as anything else. It's a combination of the Lord descending and the church ascending and meeting together in the clouds. This is what, how Kenneth Weiss translated it in his translation. As for us who are living and left behind together with them... We shall be snatched away forcibly in masses of saints having the appearance of clouds for a welcome meeting with the Lord in the lower atmosphere. It's a, it's a wild concept. And if you have not read the New Testament yet, you're here as a visitor, you might think, ding, 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 ding. You know, this sounds like a Twilight Zone episode to you. That's how I thought when I first heard about it. Kenneth Wiest, the great Greek scholar, when he translated that into his translation, said, this word is pregnant with meaning. The idea is not only to catch away, but when you catch something away or take it, the idea is that you own it and you're claiming it for yourself. That's how the Lord views it. You know, we get all excited. I can't wait till I get to heaven. The Lord can't wait to get you there. You're his. And one day he'll claim you and say, I want you with me. Whether by death or in life. It also has the impression of rescuing something from danger. Before danger occurs, you rescue that person from 
the presence of danger. Harpazo is used to Paul the Apostle in Acts 23 when a riot breaks out in the temple and they're about to cream him. The temple guards Harpazo, Paul. They rapture him away from danger. The idea here, I believe, is that before the tribulation, we'll be taken from that time of tribulation. You say, well, I believe the church is going through the tribulation. Well, that's fine. I don't. Jesus said, in the world you'll have tribulation. But the kind of tribulation you have in the world is a whole lot different from the tribulation God's going to give this earth at judgment time. It's a whole different ballgame. It's not the tribulation that comes as a source from the enemy, the devil, in the world, but it comes from God as he judges the earth during that time. In fact, in chapter 5, down in verse 9, he said, For God did not appoint us to wrath. And he talks before that about the uh, judgment that will come but to obtain salvation to our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, all this is going to happen instantly. I know I talk about it. we got this long message on it. But it's going to happen like that. Twinkling of an eye. You'll be changed in your character. You'll be pure. That which is now a process called sanctification, where you change and you think differently over a period of years, will happen instantaneously. And you'll be changed physically. An instantaneous metamorphosis when the Lord comes back. I heard of a farmer who had never taken his family to the city before. He finally had the opportunity, took them to a large metro area. and They'd never seen buildings this big or sites and all the things that you can imagine a country person seeing for the first time in a large city. He dropped his wife at the department store and he took his son to this huge skyscraper with an elevator. He walked in the lobby and the father had never seen one of these before. He'd never seen anything like it. These huge steel doors opened up and then closed. And uh, several people went in, an elderly couple, an elderly lady and... and, uh, Uh, The door closed, and they saw that little meter go one, two, three, four, five, all the way up to the tenth floor, and then ten, nine, eight, all the way down. He'd never seen an elevator before. He just saw somebody walk in, uh, this elderly gal walk in, the doors closed, and the meter went this way, meter went that way. Suddenly, the door opened again, and this beautiful young lady walked out. He turned to his son, he said, stay right here, I'm going to get your mother and run her through that thing real quick. (laughs) I mean, that's what he thought it was, some miraculous machine. Fortunately, all of us, all of us will be instantly changed in the twinkling of an eye. We'll be caught up. And when we're caught up, there'll be a change in character and spirit and also in body. Now, the greatest thing about this is that we'll be with him. It says we'll meet the Lord in the air. People have said, Skip, where is heaven? Answer, I don't know. It's wherever he is. experience than growing old as an unbeliever. That's got to be the worst thing there is. Growing old as a non-Christian. Because you've only got one way to look, and that's back. All you have is those pictures, those memories, and for some of you, they're not pleasant. If you're a Christian, no matter what the past has brought, the best is yet to come. It just will get better It's something that brings hope. Speaking of that hope, in verse 17, we come to the fourth aspect of it, and that is the reunion. And this is a great part. 
We who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them. That is, your dead relatives in Christ. The dead in Christ who rise first. Together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And thus we shall always be with the Lord. That is awesome. That momentary event will become a lifelong eternal family reunion. Now this is the thrust of this section. The young Thessalonian believers were worried about those who have died. I miss them, they said. We're separated. Paul says, don't worry. One day, Jesus will return. There will be a resurrection. A new body. And if you happen to be alive and remain until that time, you'll be caught up to meet the Lord of the air and you'll always be together with Him and with them. There will be a reunion for all time. I think of people that I've known, uh, people that I have buried, and I can't help when I walk away from a casket of a Christian as I look and see the shell, I can't help but thinking, I'll see you later. We'll see you soon. You'll get there a lot. Well, you're already there. Uh, Show us around when we get there. But that idea of a reunion, you'll be reunited with those relatives who are now with the Lord. People say, yeah, but all those changes that you speak about, will we recognize each other? And if your spirit goes to be with the Lord and you leave this body and then there's a resurrection, not a reconstruction, will we recognize each other? You know, that's a good question, but I like the way Spurgeon answered it. Somebody asked him that. He said, well, do you think in heaven we'll be more stupid than we are here? I mean, if you recognize each other now, chances are you're going to recognize each other there. Didn't Peter, James, and John on the Mount of Transfiguration when Moses and Elijah were transfigured have an instant recognition? Hey, that's Moses and Elijah. They've been dead 900 years. But there was an instant recognition. A youth in heaven will know more than an aged theologian on earth. Scripture says you will know as you are known. All that to say, verse 18, therefore comfort one another with these words. This was written for comfort. This section was not written to give a detailed eschatology of Paul the Apostle. In fact, some of you still have questions about it, so do I. But he wrote it to give comfort to the bereaved. That's principally the the purpose of this. There is comfort and hope in believing this. On the other hand, you may not believe any of this spiritual, what you would call mumble-jumble. You say, I don't believe that. I believe that... uh, I evolved from primordial slime. What hope do you have for the future? Or, I believe in reincarnation. There's no, there's no hope in that. What are you going to come back as? Maybe something a lot worse than you came in this earth as. I mean, there's no hope in that. There's hope in resurrection. There's hope in the return of Jesus Christ. That's why Christians face death a whole lot differently than a non-Christian. That's why a Christian can look into that faceless future and say, it's all right. Jesus is coming soon. And even if I die before that time, we'll all be together again. Max Lucado did it again in a great book called uh, He Still Moves the Stones, and he has a chapter that he calls The Grave Fact. Here's a portion of it. You are leaving the church building. The funeral is over. The burial is next. Ahead of you walk six men who carry the coffin. 
You're numb from the sorrow. You are stunned. Just ask Martha. She can tell you. She hoped that Jesus would show up to heal Lazarus. He didn't. Then she hoped he'd show up to bury Lazarus, and he didn't. By the time he made it to Bethany, Lazarus was four days buried, and Martha was wondering what kind of a friend Jesus was. She hears that he's at the edge of town, so she storms out to meet him. Lord, if you'd have been here, she confronts, my brother would not have died. Her words have been echoed in a thousand cemeteries. If you were doing your part, God, my husband would have survived. If you had done what's right, Lord, my baby would not have died. If you only would have heard my prayer, God, my arms would not be empty. The grave unearths our view of God. When we face death, our definition is challenged, which in turn challenges our faith, which leads me to ask a question. Why is it that we interpret the presence of death as the absence of God? Why do we think that if the body is not healed, that God is not near? Is healing the only way God demonstrates His presence? It's distressing that this view of God has no place for death. Jesus stood there and cried, Lazarus, come forth. Martha was silent as Jesus commanded. The mourners were quiet. No one stirred as Jesus stood face to face with that rock-hewn tomb and demanded that it release his friend. No one stirred, that is, except for Lazarus. Deep within the tomb he moved. His stilled heart began to beat again. Wrapped eyes popped open. Wooden fingers lifted, and a mummied man in a tomb sat up. You want to know what happened next? Let John tell you. He said, The dead man came out, and his hands and feet were wrapped with pieces of cloth, and there was a cloth around his face. Question, what's wrong with this picture? Answer, dead men don't walk out of tombs. Question, what kind of God is this? Answer, the God who holds the keys to life and death. The kind of God you want at your funeral. He'll do it again, you know. He promised he would. And he's shown that he can. For he said, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout. That same voice that awakened the corpse of Lazarus. That same voice will speak again. The earth and the sea will give up their dead. And there will be no more death. Jesus made sure of that. There's so much hope as a Christian. Some of you dabbling with philosophies, religions, humanism. You know that you don't have that kind of hope. And maybe it's eating at you a little bit. Look around at the faces in this room of believers who are tracking and anticipating Jesus to come back. It could very well be, as you look at the signs developing, without giving any dates, that Jesus Christ could come back before your lifetime is up. I anticipate Him to. But if He doesn't, Christians are in a win-win situation. If by death we depart and there's a separation, we'll all be together again. Are you ready for that? Or are you the kind who says, I hope that he's wrong. I hope this isn't true. 
It is, friend. And you can be ready for whatever happens by committing your life to Jesus Christ. There's only hope in Him. Father, we conclude by thanking You for the words of comfort and encouragement that You prompted Paul to write about. Some of us feel very much like those Thessalonian believers. We stare at death. We stare at the future. We are separated from those we love. We wonder what we're going to look like in a new body. We have all sorts of questions. We thank you for the comfort of Scripture. We thank you that because Jesus died, moreover rose physically from the grave, that there is physical resurrection awaiting us. And so, Father, I pray for those, especially right now, who have come to this second service, who do not have in their hearts, in their lives, the same hope that the Scripture speaks about. Their life is empty. It's got more questions than answers. More instability than firm-footedness. And we pray, Father, that you would awaken in their hearts their need to have Jesus Christ, the Lord we're talking about who will descend, come into their lives now. As you're in this quiet moment, if you don't know Jesus Christ, but you'd like to know Him this morning before we close this service, I'd like to pray with you this morning.